0: Good morning, church. Welcome to the house of God. It's exciting to be here again with all of you to open up the word of God and to study it together to be exposed to the truth of Christ. I want to congratulate all of you. First of all, if you've been paying attention, tomorrow will mark one year, March 15th, since COVID lockdown. All right, so last year, this time, was our first Sunday when we went to live stream. And uh, we just want to praise the Lord for bringing us back together. What a um, privilege it is. And I'm sure most of you are really appreciative of the fact that we can gather together in person and worship our Lord. Please bow down with me as we pray before we. begin our study. Our Father, may we look to Christ as we open up his word and are exposed to the truth of it. We ask for humility. We ask for grace for all of us. Help us not to run from you. Help us not to hide. Be exposed to the purity of your truth. And give us a heart, give us a desire that springs from within to want to be more and more like Christ. I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray that your word would be proclaimed here and that we would do justice to it. Not only through the proclamation, but through obedience. We pray, humbly ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you've been with us throughout our study, you know we're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus begins to give concrete examples that contrasts the false religion, the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with the true religion that belongs to Christ. Christ. Last week in verses 21 through 26, we looked at these verses in which Jesus contrasts what the scribes taught about murder versus what God says and what he had intended, anger, wrath, hatred, pride. He exposes the, the errant interpretation of the sixth command explaining that we don't have to church commit physical adultery or physical murder, rather, in order to be liable before his court. An invisible court, court of God's opinion rather than our own. Jesus' goal is to expose wrong teaching and the dirty and desperate hearts of his listeners. At this point, he really condemns no one, he only exposes. And what his listeners have to do is determine, what am I gonna do now? After my heart is exposed, what am I going to do? Because what you do later determines your future destiny. Will you realize and become poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for his righteousness, or will you continue to establish your own A story is told that many years ago, while on a visit to England, a wealthy businessman was fascinated with a powerful microscope. Looking through its lens to study crystals and petals of flowers, he was amazed at the beauty and the detail that the telescope revealed, or microscope rather. So he decided to purchase one for himself and to take it home with him. Much to his dismay, or, or he, as he played around with it, he, he thoroughly enjoyed using it until one day he decided to, to look at a grain of rice under the microscope. And much to his dismay, he discovered the tiny living creatures that were crawling in his grain of rice. Since he was especially fond of this staple food in his diet, he wondered what to do with it. Finally, he concluded that there was only one way to resolve this dilemma. He smashed the microscope to pieces, destroying the instrument that caused him to discover this distasteful fact. You know, that eventually the scribes and Pharisees will act just like this businessman who smashed the microscope because Jesus' teaching revealed to them something that they did not want to know. If you follow through the Gospel of Matthew towards the end, they will crucify the Messiah hoping that this would allow them to go back to their old ways without the constant exposure. This morning, Jesus presents us with another test, a serious test. He opens up our hearts again, and and he wants to reveal what's inside. And the test is purity. The test is sexual purity. Listen, not one of us had experienced pure sexuality without brokenness. All of us live in a broken world, thoroughly affected by sin, including human sexuality. You know, God created us as sexual beings to enjoy intimate relationship in the covenant of marriage for the glory of God and our delight. Sin, however, perverted it all. But our sexuality matters to God a great deal. That's why Scripture has a lot to say about how we conduct ourselves in this manner. The Ten Commandments contain a command that addresses human sexuality and stresses its importance. And Jesus does the same thing for us this morning. As we study this text, my prayer is that we would all tune in and that we would all listen intently as the Spirit exposes our hearts so that we do not hide, that we don't run, that we don't resist the mirror of God's word, but instead in humility that we would look to Christ for grace, and for restoration. Please open to Matthew 5. We'll begin reading at verse 27. Jesus continues by saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be, to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When it comes to the seventh commandment, thou shall not commit adultery. When it comes to our sexual purity, I want us to look at four things what Jesus has to say. Number one, I want us to see that the crime is more severe than you think. The crime is more severe than you think. Number two, the cause is much deeper than you believe. Number three, the consequences is more damning than you anticipate. And number four, the call is more radical than you expect us to look first of all at verse 27, the crime is more severe than you think. As the Lord begins the first comparison in, in verse 21 of the common interpretation of the sixth commandment with his own, he continues to address once again in verse 27, the issues of our heart. This time by going down the line, let's talk about the seventh commandment. He's not saying that the the teachers of the law quoted the seventh commandment in any errant way. Rather, he says in verse 21, they simply did not go enough in their interpretation. Verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you, once again, there's contrast, there's difference. There's a, a different emphasis that Jesus makes here. Adultery. Adultery. You shall not commit adultery. We all know what adultery is, don't we? It's a consensual sexual relationship between a married person with someone who is other than your spouse. And so according to their interpretation here, the one who committed such such act committed a crime with severe consequences. The Old Testament law required stoning by death. You shall not commit adultery. But if you choose to, there's a great consequence and that is death. But Jesus says in verse 28, it is not enough simply to to refrain from physical act, just like in verse 21, in order not to be found guilty of breaking this crime. Again, Jesus intends to take his listeners not to a physical court of law, but inside a court where that judge has the ability to not only inspect the evidence, the physical paperwork, but the judge in that court can look you in the eye and discern the thoughts and intention of your heart. So many crimes nowadays, they go unresolved because of this very issue. Judges and prosecutors They cannot look inside of our heart to determine the reality, to to see exactly what happened. There's not enough evidence to condemn someone. This judge, he looks inside of our hearts and he knows the thoughts and intentions. Consider what he says here. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her. What is the crime Is it the act? Absolutely. It deserves capital punishment, but Jesus says, don't miss this. The crime is more severe than you think. Our desires, our lusts are worthy of being judged and deserve the same kind of punishment that a physical act does. Here it is. Lust is the crime. Lust is the crime. And notice what Jesus is doing here. He says, Everyone, but I tell you, everyone, every man who looks, it's a masculine pronoun. The seventh commandment seemingly addressed only the married men, right? For only the married men could commit adultery. But Jesus raises the bar and he says, Every man, married or single, everyone. And look what else he does, who looks at a woman who looks at a woman, not a wife, any woman, married or single. You, you, you see in our culture where adultery was never the man's fault in their culture in the first century. It was always the, the woman's fault. Jesus puts his finger where it hurts the most. He directs his attention at men. Why? Well, consider the context here. Jesus is addressing the righteousness of the Pharisees versus true righteousness of the scribes or or versus his own righteousness. Look at verse 20. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, And he takes this group, seemingly religious, seemingly pure and righteous before God and he puts his finger right there. He's aiming the canon of the law right at the religious men. It seems that, that that Jesus is focusing on those who think they're saved when it comes to God's law. The, the scribes and Pharisees think they have an advantage when it comes to dealing with Jesus. You see, Jesus here, if you remember the gospel, he associates with lawless folks. He loves sinners. He hangs out with prostitutes and he hangs out with tax collectors. At one point, he dines in the house and, and this prostitute comes in and starts washing his feet with oil, with her hair. A- a- and these Pharisees, they're looking at this picture and like, if only this man knew who's touching him. And they conclude that Jesus must not be taking sin seriously if he allows this woman to come in that clothes. For them it was all about distance for them it was all about separation from sin if only he knew they conclude not only that in in John chapter 8 verse 21 they even implied that Jesus himself was a product of an adulterous relationship of an impure relationship so these men they they think they're safe when Jesus begins to talk about the Adultery, they're like, well, let's go, bring it on. Now, we have questions about you. We wonder where you come from. We even wonder why you even talk about this topic. We're safe. We're on good ground. Sounds similar, right? It's just like the previous command we're not guilty of murder. And Jesus says, well, let's look. Let's look. Let's inspect. Let's dissect. So he puts his finger at these men and he says, your crime friend is lust. Lust is your problem, your problem. You can't blame anyone for this sin, you have to own it, it's yours. You can't blame others, you can't blame the girl, you can't blame the woman, it's your problem, it's, it's my fault and I gotta own it. Christ categorically overthrows the popular teaching the current morals and divinely points his finger at the crime and he says, men, your crime is lust. What is lust? Look at the text, verse 28. Everyone who looks, everyone who looks, what does that mean? To look this way Jesus assumes more than a glance. It's more than a passing look. You look at a woman, you, you, you go forward. It, it means gazing. It means you look to study, to place your eyes on the woman, and to linger, to think, to meditate. It's this idea that Martin Luther summarized and once described. He says, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head. But you can stop the bird from building a nest in your hair. The issue is not that you spotted something or you spotted someone. We always do that. We have to do that. The warning for all of us here this morning is that we need to watch over our hearts. We need to watch what we think about, what we contemplate, what we meditate on. As soon as you notice something or someone that you know will make you linger and perhaps tempt you to continue to look to allow these quote-unquote birds to begin to build their nest. Look away, all of us and women also lust. We must be careful to watch over our hearts because that is our responsibility. Look what he he continues to say. Everyone who looks so places their eyes on the woman and, and here's the intent. They're not just looking, but here's the intent in verse 27 or 28, rather, with lust for her, with lust for her, literally to look, you look to lust. This is your intention. You look with lustful intent. You have crossed that line when you look and keep looking with intensity that your heart and your mind they begin to dwell on, so that you desire to have something greater with that person. What is the line? The line is Jesus says, At that point, when you looked to lust, you have committed a heart adultery. Your heart has taken what the eye offered and you begin to sinfully delight in that. Sinful lust, sexual lust. What is is it? It's to have uncontrolled sexual desires or urges towards a person who is not your spouse. And that includes all of us. What is the difference Consider What is the difference between lust and love? Lust and love. The desire of love is always to give, it's always to to sacrifice, it's always to benefit someone else. The desire of lust is always to get, get, get. Someone said lust is obsession with self. Lust is recklessness of a wanting heart. Lust is desire gone mad lust friends disregards god and totally disregards your neighbor to satisfy self and get this that that it never satisfies it never satisfies someone said lust is is the car craving of a of craving for salt lust is the craving for salt of a man who's dying of thirst It's like the leech in Proverbs 30, 15 that says, that has two daughters. Remember what their names were? Give, give. (laughs) Give, give. I don't know if you ever studied leeches. I don't know why you would. But if you did, check this out. I looked up a little bit about leeches. Leeches are incredible animals. They have 32 brains. They can survive loss of nine-tenths of their body weight and exposure to heavy chemicals. you just don't die. Although a leech pierces skin and sucks a huge amount of blood, that process is not painful at all. Leeches produce anesthetic which reduces the pain and allows undisturbed extraction of blood. A leech can consume three times its body weight. It has two sucking discs at each end and leeches believe it or not can grow to be 16 inches long it's a big leech that's why when you read something like second peter chapter 2 verse 14 peter says describing a group he says having eyes full of adultery that never ceases from sin Whew. listen men This is why pornography is so prevalent and it is so addictive because it never satisfies. It is never enough. And man, we we have to stop lying to ourselves saying, okay, it's just, you know, just one more. It's just this last time I'll be done. I promise. I'm almost there. I'm done. I'm satisfied. Stop lying. Your eyes will never be satisfied. This is the scriptural truth. According to one survey, every second over $3,000 are spent on porn today. That's not including all the free stuff that's available. And when you calculate that, you, you, you begin to ask why. And when you go to scripture, you find out why, because lust never satisfies and lustful people and sinners take advantage of that and they sell you stuff. Lust doesn't care. Lust destroys all reason. Lust basically tells you, I must have it and I must have it now. There's no patience with lust. Sexual lust it completely perverts what was created by God to be sacred and whole and holy to be enjoyed in the context of, of marriage. Lust is completely unreasonable. It destroys all logic within you. It makes you live for the pleasures of right now, today. And what lust does is, just like any other sin, it makes you forget about God. It makes you forget about who you are for Christians as a child of God. It's really stupid when you think about it, but that's what we do. It's as if we, we take our brains and we check them out the door and we just go like crazy animals. That's what lust does. It tells you don't worry about what God thinks about it. Don't worry about what God thinks about this sin. Go on. Don't worry about consequences. We'll worry about that later. Right now, it's time to get what you want. And what does Jesus say here? Look, look, look at verse 28. Verse 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already, has already committed adultery. Right now, you've become guilty of it. The one who looks with lustful intent has already, think think about this, oftentimes we say that lust l- leads to adultery, it leads to broken relationships, or it might lead you to, to get into a relationship, and then when you get married, all kinds of trouble will, will begin to happen. Listen, lust... Is a crime. Right now, you become an adulterer. The sinful desire of the heart, the idolatry of self that disregards Christ, that is the crime. It is more severe than we think, brothers and sisters. That's what makes us guilty. You are already. Circle that word, underline it. You don't have to do the act. You only need to think. You only need to ponder. You only need to place your focus on on the unholy in order to be guilty of this crime. You are already an adulterer, Jesus says. You know, another way lust proves damaging is through divorce because he goes to it right there in verse 31. He goes to it next, and and he proves again that men were not only guilty of committing mental adultery, but they were actually guilty of committing literal adultery. Verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Certificate of divorce. Back in Moses' day, a man divorced his wife, but a wife could not divorce her husband. It was a one-way street. And because wives were discarded left and right, to give some protection for the wife, the law required a husband to provide the wife. He was divorcing with a certificate of divorce so that that can be a legal document which would allow her to get remarried. Later on in in Matthew 19, hopefully by God's grace sometime we'll get to that passage, the Pharisees will ask Jesus about divorce specifically. And they're going to ask him, is it lawful? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus gives him an interesting answer. He says that originally God created men and women to be one, never to be separated by divorce. That was the original plan in the garden. What God therefore put together, let no man separate, let no men split in divorce But he says, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted. It wasn't the original plan, but it was a concession to your sin. So no, generally speaking, divorce is sinful. It is anti-God's plan, what Jesus says here. At the heart of divorce is a broken covenant and a broken relationship that was shattered by sin. Sin brought on by one or more parties. The Pharisees who stood nearby and listened once again felt the sting of Christ. They found all and absolutely any reason to divorce their wives if they wanted to move on from her to someone else. You could have given her a certificate of divorce because she burnt your toast. Any reason at all. Where would that stem from? Think about it. Where would the origin for this desire come from? It it is your lust. And Jesus puts the finger right on that issue and says, if you divorce your wife, if you put her out, once she remarries, and most likely she will remarry because that was her only chance of survival for a woman in that culture, not only will you be guilty of adultery, but you make her to commit adultery by getting married to someone else without being biblically divorced. And you if you yourself, man, verse 32, and whoever marries a, a divorced woman, so if you lust after another and marry someone who's been unlawfully let go by another man, you commit a crime of adultery. He says that here, this mark, except for unchastity, except for the reason of unchastity, he gives a, the only regi- legitimate reason for a divorce is sexual immorality. And of course, even in this case of sexual immorality, the scripture says that you don't have to get divorce. Forgiveness and reconciliation are still available because gospel is still available for any situation. But Jesus' point here is not to teach on marriage, It's not to teach on divorce. His point is greater. His purpose is greater. He says, you think you commit a crime when you actually have a physical act with another person outside of marriage. But I tell you that your crime is more severe than you think. Lust is your crime. But you might ask What causes us to behave this way? What is is the cause for for lust? What controls our insatiable appetites that disregard God and, and our neighbors? I want you to consider number two, the cause is much deeper than you believe. The cause is much deeper than you believe. And look at the end of verse 28. has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. Heart. Heart is the problem, church. Your heart is the issue. My heart is what causes all the trouble. Because in Matthew 15, just 10 chapters from now, Jesus will go on to say this. For out of heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries fornications these are the things which defile the man what is the problem the heart our lust originates in the heart it does not originate with our eyeballs do you see what Jesus is saying here in verses 28 and 29 our hearts are factories which manufacture all of these things evil thoughts murderies fornications our body parts church they simply respond to the stimulus of the heart they just respond why does jesus then in verse 29 says if your right eye makes you stumble or in verse 30 if your right hand makes you stumble makes you stumble literally if your eye Scandalizes you. If your right hand scandalizes you, the, the, this word that's used here, make you stumble, it's an instrument or a thing used to stumble someone. Usually a stone refers to a stone on the road that you would walk and you would trip over. And so that would be called a scandal. That would be called a, a stumbling block. But the original stem of this word carries the meaning of a trap. Someone who sets a trap for you, like a mouse trap, for instance. you know, you, you buy a mouse trap, you, you, you take the arm bar, you wind it back, then you put a little latch on it, and then you put a piece of cheese, and it, you leave it there, where you know you'll find mice. You set the trap. You set the scandal on to stumble. In this case, probably kill your pet. And here's the image he says, "Your eyes they cause you to stumble your your eyes they lure you to lust when you when you look at this trap, your eyes say, "Oh, here it is, there's something shiny, there's something glowing, there's a piece of cheese. I must go after it." Your eyes they cause you." to stumble but what controls the eyes what controls my hand Jesus says it's your heart and Christ wants us to understand that our real problem the real issue is deeper than we want to believe it goes down to our desires our thoughts not simply our deeds it is the heart brothers and sisters not the hand and Jesus is helping us to understand the real problem so that we might address the seed of the issue rather than the fruit. Once you commit something, you're done. And Jesus says, man, let's let's address the, the seed of the problem. If physical adultery is the fruit, then lust is the seed. So supposedly you could pluck out your eye and you could chop off your hand, but the problem remains, won't it? It'll still be there. We can seclude ourselves in the box with no one and nothing around and we will still be lustful. When you read about church history, in church history, various men, especially um, those who were in the period of monasticism, those who wanted to be extra holy and they really hated sin and they decided to deal with sin various ways. There was one guy who tried to get away from sinful lusts. And so he secluded himself in the cave. He, he laid on the bed of nails. But he testifies and he says this, but the dancing girls were still in my mind. There's nobody around. There's nobody there to even look at. But the problem is still in his heart. You could not get away from them. Friend, listen to this. Covenant eyes and internet filter might be good but ultimately they will not help you. Your desires need to change. Our hearts need to be transformed. You don't need a better porn filter. We need God's grace to change our lives, to change our hearts. Our eyes and hands are mere instruments Job in 31, verse 7 and verse nine, he says, "If my step has turned from the way, or my here it is, my heart followed my eyes." And then in verse nine, he says, "If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, my heart followed my eye." He said, "Who's in control? My heart has been enticed by a woman, who's in control?" The eyes, they register some information and the heart processes it and makes a decision. How am I gonna respond? The heart is the control center. Jesus wants us here in verse 29 and 30 to guard the inlets or the pathway to our heart so carefully that if need be, you will shut that gate of your soul by plucking your eye and cutting off your hand. It says it matters that much. So radical must our fight be that he said, using this hyperbolic language here, he's not calling us to do that. Many people have tried physically to do it, and they did not succeed. He's trying by using this language to say, listen, these are inlets into your soul, into your heart, and you need to do whatever you can in order to stop it, cut it off. Jesus is speaking to our hearts. He's not speaking to our eyeballs. He gets right to our problem, our desires of our hearts. This is what we read in James chapter one. We produce it ourselves. This is ours to own. He wants us to see that true righteousness that surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees lies in the heart. So the crime is lust. The cause is The heart, Jesus doesn't stop there. He wants us to see and to understand the gravity of our condition. Our heart adultery, he says, it's bad. It's really bad. It's so bad. He says in verse 29 and 30 that it deserves hell. It deserves hell. The consequence, number three, is more damning than you anticipate. You know what lust does? He says two things. Lust destroys relationships. Left unchecked in your heart, Lust will cause you married men to look intently at others and find all kinds of wrong in the person you're, you've committed your life to in a covenant relationship so that when your lust runs wild, you will find all kinds of good and all kinds of permissible ways to get rid of your current wife. You may even find biblical support to do that. And what is the result when that happens? The result is broken marriages, broken families, single parent homes, desperate children, abandoned kids. What causes all that? Jesus goes right to the heart of it and says, "Your lust, my lust." Lust creates permanent break in the covenant of marriage. And lust destroys you single men as well. But if you think this is bad, there is a more damning consequence to lust that still exists. Broken marriages are terrible. Divorce is cruel. I'm sure many of you sitting here either know of someone or maybe come from a divorced family. I come from such family myself. Look, we are all sinners. We are all affected by sin. However, Jesus wants us to understand something very important here. Lust not only destroys relationship, Lust leads you to hell. Your heart leads you to hell. He wants you to see that, and I want you to see that in verse 29 and 30. He says, it is better for you to lose one part than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if one time wasn't enough, he gives you the second one at the end of 30, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Hell is a permanent break from God. This is not a popular doctrine nowadays, But nevertheless, we need to hear what Jesus says, and we need to hear it from Jesus, not what our culture, or what our friend, or what our college professor might have to say on this topic. Friend, there is hell. It is real. It is serious. It is dreadful. Christ talked about hell probably more than anything else he talked about during his ministry. Because if you're doubting the reality of hell, you need to question the reality of the cross. If there's no hell, there's no need for the cross. Jesus died in vain. He messed up. He miscalculated. Why so cruel? Why go through all of that, Jesus, if there's no punishment for sin? If there's no hell, eternal separation from God, why would Jesus then suffered to rescue us, quote, from the wrath to come, unquote. Do you see a problem here? Yet Jesus doesn't make the mistake. He knew what he was after. He was well aware of the reality of hell and suffering. Your lust, if not resolved, Jesus said, will send you straight to hell, your whole body. Whew. Uh, revelation 21 8 but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death that's it this is where all of us in our natural state without committing a physical act of adultery are heading the consequence of unresolved and repentant lust is more damaging is more damning than you anticipate listen to jesus and i want you to notice something notice his switch from third person to second person in verse 29 he says here in verse 28 he says if if everyone looks at a woman with lust after her he has committed adultery but in verse 29 he as if he kinda looks at you and he says, but I tell you, I tell you. But if your eye, eye, if your hand causes you to stumble, he looks you in the eye and he says, look, your thoughts, lustful desires, they deserve capital punishment. Eternal damnation to hell because of evil thoughts. God, are you really gonna damn me because I thought evil? I didn't do anything. I didn't commit a single act. Are you gonna damn me to hell because of what I think? And he says, yes, your whole body will be thrown into hell. Listen, this is not a scare tactic. And I don't think Jesus used it to scare people into submission, to scare people into worship. What he was doing is he was giving you the reality. He was giving you the truth. Listen, this is how it is. And this is why I came. Not to scare you, but to tell you that if you don't resolve this is the end. So, man, we're in real trouble because of our lust, aren't we? I mean, there seems to be no way of escape for us. This command gets us all. And and ladies, if you're sitting here and if you're like, man, this is man's problem, it's your problem too. Just our makeup allows us to, to lust more than you, but you lust also. Listen, we come to realize the weight of of our total depravity, don't we, when we just look here. And it's good for us to consider the consequences of our lustful hearts. But, but get this, Jesus here wants us to look elsewhere as well. He wants us to look to him. He wants us to long for him. So by way of conclusion, consider this last point. Number four, the call is more radical than you expect Two things I want you to notice here. Number one, that, that in Christ, you have hope of salvation. You have hope of salvation. Christ died and redeemed you from your lust, from all the consequences of sin. It's all in him. He lived it. He died he resurrected, he earned it. He can give you what we are exposed to. He can take that away and give us his righteousness because that's the ultimate goal of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? The ultimate call is to sense our desperate state and to look to Jesus for answers. He has the solution. He is the solution. Brother and sister, don't smash the microscope of God's word. Deal with what it exposes. Those of you who are burning this morning under the weight of guilt, don't try to clean up, don't try to brush off. Promise yourself that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm almost ready to curb this thing, I'm almost there. You can't, you won't, you've tried, I've tried. In Christ, you have hope of salvation and restoration. The lustful factory can be transformed to produce love. Isn't that amazing? The kind that God pours out into our hearts and that we can now love God and we can love our spouse and we can love other brothers and sisters with the type of love that that only he gives. He will transform you. Trust him if you're sitting here and if you haven't trusted Christ, I wanna encourage you, do it. The consequences are great. Christ is sweet. But for us believers who who continue to struggle with this, it's not like it's getting any easier. It's not like we're not feeling this burden and and, and this sense of guilt sometimes. Listen, in Christ, you have hope of sanctification. Because of what Christ has done, because of his grace, because of his mercy, listen, listen, Because of our relationship with Christ, and I want you to see that Jesus' call here is for us to be conformed to his character. That's why he says, you you have heard that it was said this way, but I tell you, I tell you, follow me, he says. Brother, follow me. He doesn't want us to just follow some kind of code, like we're going to replace the law of Moses with another set of laws, and we're just going to feel, again, shameful and bitter about the fact that we cannot produce any righteousness on our own. That's the whole point of the gospel is to get us out of there, to, to redeem us, to sanctify us, to give us something we could never earn, but also to give us a relationship with Jesus Christ so that out of that relationship with Christ, we can look at whatever else that entices us. And grow gradually a distaste for that. Why? Because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is better. He says it is better for you. It is better for you. Why? When you dwell on the love of Christ that's been poured out in your heart, your affections begin to change so that as your eye delivers, whatever it is that's delivering to the heart, your heart is not lustful it is better to it is able rather to reflect on the love of christ and says tim you don't need this you turn away you can resist it look what second peter chapter one says in verse three and four seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence For by these he has granted to us all the precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Here's what Peter says, brothers and sisters, you need divine power and you have power. Power comes not from a set of code, new law. Power comes from knowing Jesus Christ and loving Jesus Christ. Not a technique, not some mechanism. Supernatural power. And Christian, you have it because you know Jesus Christ. Christ. What do you do when this temptation comes in? You run. You run. I like what Spurgeon said. Sometimes the best remedy to sexual temptation is a good pair of legs and a king's highway. <laughs> Remember, we talked about king's highway when we studied John the Baptist? Level ground. You look, you see, and you book. Because when it comes to sexual temptation, scripture never tells you to stand and resist. Why? Because you will never overcome when you stand and resist. Sometimes we think about our spiritual maturity and we like, well, I've been saved for 15 years now. I can stand against any temptation. I can stand against sexual temptation. No, you can't. Spiritual maturity is demonstrated when you understand what's coming your way and you're able to realize it and you run and you run as far and as close to Jesus as possible, not How far can I get to it and not cross the line and not sin? That's not spiritual maturity. That is infancy. Spiritual maturity is like, I know what that is. And I've been there before. I've seen it. I love Christ and I want to be next to him so that that doesn't even entice me. And it will. And you will fail. But we have forgiveness in Christ. Don't dwell on that. Trust Jesus Christ. His power is available for you. It is better. Christ is better. Jesus is more satisfying than any image our lustful hearts long for. Meditate on Christ. Ask questions when you feel it. Heart, why do you long for such filth? Jesus is better. Speak to your heart. Obedience to my Lord is sweeter. Why would you, my soul, be satisfied with anything else? If you need help, Talk to someone, don't delay. Seek help from a brother or sister. Be radical in order to pursue radical purity. We'll read, or we'll be singing right now this next, our final song, and it, it goes like this. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Uh, Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you. Behold you. Our savior ever true, Jesus. We turn our eyes to you. You know, Spurgeon once prayed, Lord, I love thee better than my hands and eyes. Let me never delay for a moment to the giving up of all for thee. Father, we thank you for this lens that exposes, that condemns, but also that graces. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, how sweet it is to know him. And even when we come under this guilt and understanding that we're not what we will one day be. We have hope in Christ, it's all paid for, we're not suffering the consequences of sin. Help us, Lord, out of that relationship with Christ to pursue purity. Help us all help this church to be serious about honoring and loving Jesus and let that be visible in our attitudes, in our actions, in our words. We praise you in Christ's holy name, amen.